All right. Happy Sunday, everybody, and happy weekend. You're listening to A Minor Detail on blogtalkradio.com, and I am very busy lately, but that's a good thing. And we're getting ready. Kim and I are getting ready for the wedding, and we're getting ready to do all sorts of fun things, And uh, but we'll talk about that later. I have one of the brightest guys in Annapolis on the show tonight, and he's also pretty busy these days, and his name is Rich Madalino, and he's a state senator in District 18, and he is going to be my guest this evening, so I'm going to go ahead and welcome him. Senator Madalino, welcome. Well, thanks for having me, Reiner. Ryan. Absolutely. Not, I, Reiner. I put Ryan, Ryan Miner together into one exciting that, you word. Know, that's probably not the first time, and it's certainly not going to be the last time that ever happens. Um, so you are um, – you're just one of the most fascinating people in Annapolis, and I, I want to use this interview tonight to, um, I, I guess, open up and get and have people to learn a little bit more about you, the person, and then we'll get into policy and we'll get into talking about your career, but I, I really like to talk about you and – how you got started in your career, and where it's taken you, the trajectory, and uh, then we'll talk about what would you know what it's like to run for governor, and then we'll talk about some of your policies, and uh, that's that should that should take up about an hour. So I just want to start and say that um, you are you were born and raised in in Silver Spring, is that right? Well, I was raised in Silver Spring. I was. Born out of state, but my parents moved um, here with me in, when I was three years old. So oh, wow. I don't remember living anywhere else but um, <laughs> in my childhood in Silver, in Silver Spring. And you went to – you were educated in Montgomery County Public Schools. What schools did yep. you go to? So we were the third family to move into the Burnt Mill townhouses at uh, you know 29 in New Hampshire in White Oak. Um, in 1968, so I started kindergarten at Burnt Mills Elementary, uh, and then uh, later, in the middle of third grade, my parents moved further out in Hampshire Avenue to Stonegate, uh, when that was a relatively new development, and <laughs> wound up uh, going to Stonegate Elementary, and then White Oak for junior high school, when our schools in uh, Montgomery County were called junior high schools, so I went to White Oak, but instead of going to Springbrook, um, my parents were to Georgetown Prep in Rockville, and that's where I did high school. Yeah, all great schools. And I, I live in a community in North Potomac, and um, you know, 30 years ago, much of the surrounding area was nothing but farmland. And my home, Montgomery Rock. County, has grown so much. I, I remember Crown. I live um, probably about 10 minutes away from downtown Crown in Rio, and yeah, you know, I, I remember you know. Uh, you know, five, seven years ago, it was, you know, a large field. And now it's turned into a great urban area for people to have something to eat and as well as to see a movie over in Rio and elsewhere. It's, it's pretty cool. And when we moved, when we moved out to Stonegate, New Hampshire Avenue was two lanes. Once you pass Randolph road, New Hampshire Avenue was two lanes. I even remember Randolph road as two lanes between, um, pretty much Georgia Avenue and um, anywhere going, you know, the whole area to the, to the east. 
there's you can still see when you're driving Randolph Road and you come down to the dip where it it runs into Kent Mill, you can still see a little two-lane bridge that is kind of off to the over the creek that used to be where how Randolph kind of snaked around um and the way the way it was is a two-lane road. So it was a very different area and I, I remember um, when we first moved to Stonegate, so we still had a Silver Spring address. We had a cow pasture in our backyard. We looked out at cows, and then the baseball, so that people sort of understand where where this is, the baseball field that we played on, which was the field that uh, the farmer would use to grow hay for the for the um, for the cows, right now is that huge parcel which now is home to a ukrainian orthodox church so mm. i'm sure for your listeners or anyone has driven new hampshire avenue seen the the church with the onion domes on it <laughs> yeah. um and then the muslim community center and yeah. that those were open fields that we would play baseball and football on because our neighborhood was right adjacent to it and that little there's a there's a little there there's probably still remnants of the little um, road that was the driveway down to the farmer's house, which is all well, long gone. So, but a very different time. And when my parents moved out there, so I guess we're talking about mm, mid to early 70s when my parents moved out there. I mean, that was the end of the suburbs. I mean, there really that was that was nothing. There was nothing really further <laughs> further beyond there, um, except for farms. And um, when when we moved, I remember people saying to my parents, like, why, they, why are you moving all the way out there? That is so far away. And my parents telling people, well, they're about to build this highway. It's going to be very convenient. <laughs> and that, that highway, which was always known as the Intercounty Connector, did take yeah. uh, decades <laughs> to actually get built. Um, but uh, they were long gone by the time. I mean, I was finished school and gone, and they they were eventually moved out long before the highway was ever built. Yeah, and the ICC is, uh, interestingly enough, incidentally, dedicated to former Governor Bob Ehrlich. Um, yes, who, I, yeah, I cast yes. that sign today, in fact, yes. Are you, are you, saw, are, you said you saw him? No, I saw past that sign. Oh, you, yeah. Today on okay. the ICC, the one that says this road dedicated to Robert L. Yeah. Uh, Early. I think there's a couple of those, and uh, but I mean, it the the ICC is was a project that was long in the works, and I think that not only was Bob Ehrlich, um, you know, shepherding the project so to speak, but I think there was many people in Montgomery County that we could also give fair credit to for making sure that it happened, and many of our local officials here were. Um, we're somewhat opposed to it, so but we'll get to that later. But you know, back yep. in the day when when you were um, when you you were a young guy and you moved, you know, with your parents, uh, there's I'm sure there was a lot less traffic than there was today, uh, as as we have learned uh, living in Montgomery County. We were faced with that obstacle every day, getting to and from work. But uh, well, I'm hoping that I'm amazed. Um, Remember having, you know, commuting from Silver Spring to Rockville to go to high school. So from 79 to 83, I remember, you know, Randolph Road, you know, because most of that trip was along Randolph Road. 
rarely did it take more than one light cycle to get through any light. Like even at Georgia and Randolph, you know, it was yeah. usually one, maybe two cycles to get through um, and to go to to keep on your way. And now, of course, that intersection is being completely rebuilt as it's become so congested. Mm-hmm. And the backup so extreme on both sides is being rebuilt to be a great separated interchange so that the, the traffic can flow on a, on a quicker basis because it's become so inundated. So I don't know if you realize the story about Montgomery County to give you a bit of history. But oh, please. Um, Montgomery County, as you probably know, you, you probably know about the corridor and the wedges plan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the whole idea of decades ago, the planning commission laid out the, the idea that Montgomery County outside the beltway – and uh, and the communities that sort of ring the beltway, Montgomery County would grow in a series of corridors, the two corridors going up 29 and up 270, and so you'd be able to feed, you know, the traffic would feed down for the, in essence, the north-south traffic would would flow in those two corridors, and the other parts of the county would be the wedges that would have very different zoning and would keep... Um, large-scale development from from occurring and keep a more pastoral look to the two sides. And when you think about that as a as any of your listeners or you can picture what that looks like, the one area that violates that kind of whole concept is Olney, because here is this massive area of development, sort of up Georgia Avenue that is outside of either one of the established corridors. And the whole reason that happened was in um, 1964, in the uh, 1966, in the election of 1966, the, the state and county election cycle of 1966, I know it's hard to believe that prior to 1966, the Montgomery County had a Republican majority county council. Wow. And... And they lost. And at that point, the entire county council was elected at large. There were seven members, all elected at large. And there was a swing election that year, and they lost. And in their lame duck session, they rezoned Olney and made it, opened it up for all of that development. And, of course, whenever you change zoning like that to increase capacity, um, to reverse that runs into all sorts of legal issues about taking property rights, taking, you know, diminishing one's financial rights off their property. So it was impossible to stop it. And then as a result, the county charter was changed that specifically prohibits any any zoning changes after an election so that hmm. a lame duck can't, council can't make zoning changes. And um, those of us who live along the Connecticut and Georgia Avenue corridors where you're wondering, like, this is horrible. Why is this traffic so bad? Like, how did this happen? It's because there was never, there was never in mind, never the infrastructure to handle that type of growth and no mm-hmm. planning for that growth to occur, which is why, like for those of us who live in Kensington, for example, um, north I live north of the town in Kensington, you know, Connecticut Avenue is so difficult, um, 
going, you know, almost the whole length from, in some cases, seemingly from Aspen Hill all the way to East West Highway um, in the morning. Now, let's hope that our county council and uh, perhaps our new county executive, uh, the, the candidates running, will be able to talk about a good plan to to fix a lot of this traffic and mitigate this flow. And I mean, I'm I'm all for getting more cars off the road and getting more people using um, transfer, transportation in a different format, perhaps bus rapid uh-huh. transit. I would love to I would love to see us mitigate this major problem that we have on 295 and 495. I work in uh, Reston, Senator Madalino, and um, as I've traveled to Northern Virginia each day, I usually take uh, – I go back roads to River Road. I go down 190 and then hit 495 and then merge onto the Beltway. And then as I back up to and, – and, and invariably, as I back up into the – the um uh, the the American Legion bridge I'm always stuck in traffic and rarely there is ever right. on both sides so you know once I get past the American Legion bridge and into northern virginia um you know I get on the the the, the Dallas toll road and that takes me right into Reston and that's that's pretty free flowing so there's no problem there but I I spend years of my life I feel like stuck in my car listening to you know you know i listen to music and 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 i have sirius xm radio i mean that keeps me occupied but man we'll we'll get to that because there's there's a lot of traffic congestion problems and you're well aware of it you live it each day so um yep um so yeah after you graduated high school you went off to syracuse university where you earned a, a ba in 1987 and then a mpa in 19 19- 89. And Senator Madalino, when you were in high school or in college, were you, were you struck by the political bug? Were you involved with political activities in, um, in Montgomery County or up in Syracuse? So my mother put me in front of our polling place when I was nine years old um, to hand out literature for the candidate who was running for governor at the time. Um, interestingly, on the Republican side, uh, oh. I think her name was Louise Gore, uh, running for election in 1974. Um, my mother, a devoted feminist, was out there trying to elect the first woman to be governor of the state of Maryland. So, um, And I found it fascinating then. And four years later, one of our neighbors um, wound up uh, – handing out or running for the house of delegates Hmm. and um did they win no she did not um but she was running at that point we were in a single member district that part of the the county i think then that may have been like district i can't remember it was 13 or 14 but it was a sub district and um she ran and your task at that point in a world before computers as a as a young teenager was to be the was to run the database which then was alphabetizing index cards that contained <laughs> all the names of the voters you know because you went to that that point you would go to the the board of elections they'd give you a huge you could get the printout of all the voters i mean now if you wanted to go do it i think it's like 20 bucks and you get a and you get a CD-ROM with everybody. Then it was this giant printout. If you remember, probably those old-style computer printout, you know that had oh, the yeah. little that ran. It had the little holes on both sides, 
of the paper and they ran <laughs> it would take you know, forever ran, to print out yes and so one of your jobs um as a young volunteer was to cut out the data of each voter and with a glue stick put it on an index card and alphabetize it and then obviously as people as you contacted voters um that's how you you know you kept track of who you were contacting and then the campaign how the campaign was you know how the campaign was contacting voters and what the results were so um a very how much time has changed times have changed since you know kind of you do those you do all of that on iPhones and you can you know you you can do it in a matter of of minutes a task yeah. that would have taken days of multiple volunteers but you know I just found that fascinating to see how to how that worked and you know I was always engaged in student government and as an undergraduate I was president of the student body at Syracuse University which mm-hmm. you know Syracuse being the university being a very large piece of that um, local community um, it had a certain degree of profile within uh, within the county and I, I think at one point I looked at it you know, because New York is subdivided into all these towns and villages and cities, and right. that uh, student body at the university was the third largest um, voting entity in Onondaga County, New York. So, um, <laughs> I I loved politics, but also at that time, and I'm sure we'll get into a little bit of this. Um, you know, as as I was also discovering my own sexual sexuality. That was not a time where you thought openly gay people or gay people at all ran for office and won. And so as I reconciled my political interests with my identity, you know, I kind of thought like throughout throughout American history, you would wind up being, you know, someone who could work in politics but never be the candidate, never be the front person. You could be a staff person. Uh, but you could never be out front um, trying to sell yourself, trying to be the candidate yourself until Barney Frank, I mean, for me, until Barney Frank came yeah. along and came out. And I remember sneaking off to the university library and pulling out, you know, again, in a world before the Internet, if that's hard to believe, having to go to a library to see the physical copy of the Boston Globe which had, was running the story about how a congressman was coming out and reading all about all about him and how exciting that was and thinking, oh, I wonder, I wonder if this is possible. I wonder if it's possible in a place other than like Boston or San Francisco. Could I return home? It's hard to believe now with Montgomery County's reputation that you know anyone would look at it and go like, oh, this is, you know, obviously this is a liberal bastion in a liberal in a liberal state, but. Um, you know, I didn't know if that would be if that would ever be possible. You know, I I'm glad you brought that up, and you know, you said you were coming to terms with your identity, and back in the the 80s, um, and that's when you were in college. You know, I always find it interesting when people say, well, you know, you ask, you know, I, I people ask, you know, their friends who are are gay or in a you know same sex marriage, and you say, well. You know, when did you discover that you were gay? And my and their response to me was, "Oh, well, well, when did you discover you were straight? Like I actually have, you had a choice." And you know, I, I, I look at this, and I, my, myself, I have um, many, many gay friends, and, um, and but 
back when you were in college and when you were, you know, you said coming to terms with this, with your sexuality, um, it had to be, you know, it's still, but you know, it had to be tough back then. And as you said, well, you know, you could be a staffer, but you couldn't be a candidate. And then you saw what Barney Frank of Massachusetts was doing, and he went on to be a pioneer um, and uh, supporting the gay rights movement, the LGBTQ movement. And you know, at, at what point did you come out and say, "Hey, this is who I am. I'm 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 gay." And was what was that like for you? I mean, I started, I think the first time I told somebody was my freshman year in college, you know, and then over time telling more and more people and, you know, and having more and more people say, tell me something I don't know. Like, you know, you, you, you tend to, to think about it as a, you know, oh, this is a carefully guarded secret that no one, right. no one knows. And then you eventually realize that, yes, <laughs> it's not yeah. people did know that, you know, um, young, young women who were trying to get your attention that you were oblivious to were <laughs> <laughs> clearly understood that there was something, there, there was something different. So, yeah. um, you know, I, but man, how, I mean, it's, it's just, the 1980s, but it's so gone. hard, right. And it's so hard to tell, it's so hard to tell people and sometimes to, re, to remind people of, what the the 1980s were like, you know, the you had at you know at the same time where you know I was hitting college and hitting adulthood was the same time that that HIV/AIDS was hitting the scene, and not understanding how how and why that was happening and. You know, if you remember sort of the debates swirling around that and the conversations about whether it could be talked about and how, you know, right. I, I I don't think they could ever get Ronald Reagan or it took him years to actually say the the use the term AIDS. And, you know, it was there were it was such a different it was such a different time. And it's amazing. I mean, you said it yourself. It's amazing how much this society has changed. I'm always shocked when I meet, you know, young people, you know, someone who's out in high school, and it's like, yeah. how? Like, like that's, you know, that was that would have been a, I mean, I, I, I don't know, I, who knows? I could have been, you know, probably expelled from the all male Catholic high school I went to for coming out <laughs> at the time, and yeah, I don't George think that would Dale happen. Was tough, tough ground. I don't think back that then. would happen. Right. I don't think that would happen now there. So, but, you know, still it's, it's amazing to, to think about the, the changes. And I, for one, am proud of the role I've played in helping those changes occur, helping make, you know, making sure that young, young people don't need to be ashamed, that they have role models, letting the rest of the community know that we are, we are as, as, average and um unthreatening as any other as any other person and that our in fact our relationships are just as exciting and affirming and loving and dull and average as any other relationship and marriage so um well, it, it, amen it, to that you yep. are a 
um, I, I mean this with all sincerity. You are a true pioneer in the state of Maryland for what you have done and the efforts that you have led um, to advance legislation that are important to Marylanders um, who not only are um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, but who are supportive of the movement. And, you know, listen, I, and I'll, I'll share this as a, as a former Republican turned fierce independent with uh, many progressive leanings on one side. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a true blue progressive yet as uh, many of my democratic friends like to point out, but I I will say that at, at one time I didn't understand the issue. I, di- I, ju- I just didn't understand it. But then when you when I got out and actually discovered that well, I have lots of friends, I mean, and they've sat down and said, hey, Ryan, you know, this is this is who we are. This is how we feel. And it, it finally truly hit me. I have a close friend up in Washington County and they um, they own a cafe in Williamsport. And uh, it's they're, they're a married couple who were married in Washington, D.C. before it was legal to get married in the state of Maryland. And they, they finally came out one day and told me, and, and I was completely oblivious. And I went, oh, I said, that's great. I mean, I, and, and you know, it, it kept happening and happening and happening that other friends would, would say, hey, this is, this is who we are, um, not just to me, but to other people. And I, I, I'm just at a point in my life where I'm thinking, how could this relationship between two people of the same sex be any less at all? Than, than, than a straight couple. And what you've done in the state of Maryland, especially with um, supporting same-sex marriage, um, that was incredible. And you know, hat, my hat is off to you for what you've done, not only on that, but you know, to a bill to make discrimination against transgender people illegal in housing, employment, and public accommodations. And I'm just at the point where I, you know, as a, as a person of not only of what I believe to be a faith and to, I just want to ask people who are so vehemently opposed. Why are you, you know, why, what, what, what's, what's the deal? I mean, I look at somebody like I grew up in Western Maryland and it's, and you know, Rich, you've been up there many times. It's a little bit different up there than Montgomery County. They're um, some of those folks up there are rock rib conservatives. You know, they're the hardcore right wing Trump guys. And I look at people like Neil Parrott, Neil Parrott, who is, probably a decent guy, but is just virtually wrong on all, a lot of issues. And especially, you know, I think he tried to lead a petition back in 2012 to um, prevent gay marriage. And it was question six was over, I think, supported by over half of Maryland. There's what, 52 or 53 percent. Oh, yes. And so, you know, I probably supported that. And I, um, I, I just never understood why certain legislators are, who are so vehemently anti-gay um, stake out that position. Like it's it's not I, I it's 2018. I just don't quite understand it. And maybe there's a lot of smart people out there who can explain it, but um, I just don't get it. I I wish I did, but maybe somebody will have to explain it to me someday. <laughs> so. Well, it is it. it, it. I mean, I was amazed at how and why um, and for how long people opposed it, um, but they did. So Yeah, yeah, they did. Um, but, and- I mean, we won. We won big. 
I mean, that's people are yeah. like, oh my god! I think it was, I don't know if our victory was like three points, five points. People, oh, it was so close! I'm like, that is a landslide. We haven't won anywhere in the country, and we won. Like that is that is enormous. Um, and and in a state where people said it would never be done, and yeah. it could never be done, and we won. And that day, if you remember that day. Um, in 2012, not only did we win in Maryland, we the, um, the, a similar referendum passed in Maine and in Washington State and in Minnesota on the same day. They rejected an um, an anti marriage equality provision yeah. in their state constitution. So, um, for those of us who believed in the freedom to marry, we were four for four that day, and that really, I think, across the board, that's the last time votes were taken on the issue. Yeah. And, you know, and then the Supreme Court, uh, other states moved forward, then the Supreme Court moved forward. So um, it is remarkable how far, how how things changed and how quickly they changed. And, you know, I remember uh, uh, we would not be where we are without Paris Glendening. So I don't mean this as a criticism of Paris Glendening, but I remember, you know, when he was pushing forward with an anti-discrimination law that covered sexual orientation that, yeah. you know, even even he then – you know, we're we're talking less than twenty years ago. It was like nope, 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 yeah, no, no, you know, hmm. marriage, no. And I think it took people to say, really, to start saying, as as happened with you, why? Yeah. And I think why? People after a while, we're like, well, because, well, because, uh, 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 yeah, I guess why not? Like just because it's always been that way, you know. Sometimes it's just. You, you got to have someone stand up and say, uh, "Why is it this way?" <laughs> and yeah, suddenly, you got you got a lot of people who go, "Well, it's always been that way, but yeah, maybe it doesn't have to stay that way." I remember and, in college. I was going to say, I, was, go I remember in college, uh, the Republican and young Republicans and or college Republicans rather, and the college Democrats got together for a debate, and this was back, and I believe in two thousand five. And one of the issues was gay marriage, and the Republican who was tasked to debate the anti-gay marriage position at the last minute said, you know what? I can't do this because there's no logic to it. Therefore, I'm not going to do it, and I, they ended up dropping the issue because it was so silly. And so I, that was at my college at Duquesne, and uh, we sat back and we're like, oh, okay, yeah. So um, – Anyway, anyway, we'll we'll keep moving. And so I, I want to talk about you. You jumped in after college, and you started your career working in Maryland government. And you worked mm-hmm. first for the General Assembly's Department of Fiscal Services. And what they do, they provide the the staff support to our state delegates and senators. And you were also appointed as the senior analyst for the House Appropriations Committee. And then in 1995, you were hired by um, the then Montgomery County County Executive uh, Doug Duncan, and you worked for uh, Montgomery County's Office of Intergovernmental Relations. So um, you served in that position until you decided to run yourself for state delegate and um, District 18 in 2002. So you had quite a bit of experience. You were legislative staffer. Uh, you you did a lot of work um, in, in the county government. And by the way, shout out to Doug Duncan, um, who is still one of the what I, I believe one of the best 
county executives Montgomery County's ever had. And he, he really did some, some solid work here. Um, and then you first ran in 2002, and you won one of the three seats representing the 18th district in the House of Delegates. So talk about that race. What was it like to be on the ballot for the very first time, and what, uh, what was the strategy to win? Um, well, if you remember in 2002, so the district that I, I represent was um, state the state senator prior to 2002 was this young guy named Chris Van Hollen. Um, oh, yeah. I heard about him. At, in 2000, yeah, you may remember that name. In 2002, he ran for Congress um, and thus gave up his – could not run for re-election for a Senate seat. One of the sitting um, – one of the then uh, incumbent delegates, Sharon Grossfeld, ran for um, – the state senate leaving one vacancy and then because that was a redistricting year um the lines had been drawn to actually place um one of the other incumbents in the race delegate john herson um into a different legislative district so um district 18 had two vacancies and so a whole bunch of people jumped in the race. In fact, the, the, there was the one incumbent at the time. His name was um, Leon Billings. Um, uh-huh. And Leon ran on a ticket with Sharon Grossfeld. And then um, two people, two other people ran against Sharon for the state Senate. And then uh, I think five people jumped into the delegate race. Um, and you know, some of them, one had been a member of the Central Committee, one had been a municipal official, uh, one was on the school board, had previously been on the school board, um, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to think the other one was, one was, you know, a local activist, and, you know, so you had, you had a, a bunch of of people you know, in the race, who felt better known, but I had a you know a plan, a very methodical plan. I had fr- a friend who had run numerous state legislative campaigns, who gave us a very strict campaign plan, and was confident enough. Saying, I remember her saying, "Follow the plan, and you'll win." Yeah. If I guarantee you, follow the plan, and you'll win. That what happens is things happen, and Canada gets nervous, and you start redoing things, and and that's when you lose. But if you stick to the plan, you'll win. And I remember the filing deadline. That remember the primaries then were in the kind of the second September. week of September. Yeah. So so the the filing the filing deadline was the filing deadline to run was always then in. July. It was always like the day before or the day, two days after the 4th of July holiday. And like two weeks before the filing deadline, the state court of appeals, which is Maryland's highest court, totally threw out the redistricting map and redrew it. Just came up with a totally new map, putting John Herson back into District 18. So now after months of working, with all these people, all these different candidates running, now you had two incumbents instead of three incumbents, which made for a very, you know, then an even more crowded field. And um, we just plugged along 
with people, you know, consistently telling me I didn't stand a chance. How could I win? All these people were better known. They'd done all these different things in the party. Um, and we just stayed focused with our plan and disciplined with our plan and um, managed to win. But Quite the other thing. A lot of doors. I, yes, yes. A lot of doors, a lot of mail. But one of the things that um, I, I always thought was fascinating was the number of people who jumped in, the number of friends um, and acquaintances who jumped in to help who were like, wow, you're, you know, so many people talk about pursuing dreams, you know, have these goals. I want to do this. I want to do that. And, uh, you know, but life gets in the way. You, you know, you have, you have commitments, you have family, you do all these things that, that you don't pursue these goals. It's like, wow, you're really – you're really doing it. You talked about doing it and you're doing it. And at first I remember thinking, you know, Oh, what if I, what if I lose? What will people think if I, if I lose? And, you know, it became a, wow, you're, you know, I'm impressed that you've got the, you've got the guts to do this. And so, um, that was, you know, it, it was, it was a fun and, you know, it was an easy time. Um, my my husband um, was my most active volunteer. We didn't have kids. You know, we would come home uh, every day after door knocking in the evening and sit down. And uh, we converted our basement into the campaign office. And I remember we'd sit at this table and write out postcards to everyone we had knocked, every door we had gone to. We wow. we. We we do uh, a, a postcard, and so much of it. It's so funny to see how technology has changed. You know, I don't think there was, there wasn't, there wasn't the ubiquitous email. You rarely, you know, you really couldn't communicate by, by email. So you you wound up. Um, there was no there was no database. You, you created your own database. I remember, thankfully, I had a friend who was great with Access, Microsoft Access. Yeah. If you remember that program, who created oh, yeah. our own our own database, you know those were the things where you had those sorts of things were you know advantage being able to do those sorts of things internally, you know would would give you a huge advantage because people didn't have access to that. Now, you know both parties have centralized that and created their own you know their own mechanism, their own databases that you buy into. I mean. Those sorts of organizational advantages that um, that were a candidate by candidate or campaign campaign sort of thing, all all have all gone away. Yeah. And so they, because they're all now centralized, if you want to use you know the the party database, for example. But I re, I remember doing the campaign budget then, like okay, we have the money to do one one full color mailing. <laughs> now everything is full color. color. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that has happened in so many of these races, and sadly, we're not talking about why. Um, really, I'm the best person to be the next governor of the state of Maryland. We're going to get to that. One of the fascinating things about so many of these legislative races is, you know, you, you have all of these consultants who work with congressional candidates and statewide candidates, but computer technology has made it simpler and simpler for them to take that same technology and that same level of talent and bring it down to 
state-level races, to state legislative races, and to county races, and you know, and to do the the, the full-color ads and the hyper-targeting and all that kind of stuff that you just didn't see. You know, usually you had, you know, my first race. You know, there were a handful of 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 in-state firms who did who did the the type of 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 um, work to develop the mailers for you, and and they were all they were they were creative. They weren't cookie cutter. They, you know, they were all they were all done. Um, they were all created individually, and you know now so much of it is cookie cutter, and it's you know take the picture of candidate Y out and put the picture of candidate X in and change the state from this to that because you're just you know you're talking about creating jobs in Idaho or creating jobs in Ohio or creating jobs in Virginia and you know it's the same theme the same stock photos and it's just that the the same style of campaigning which which once was organic and original um state by state if not county by county has really gone to the the wayside as, right. as every you know as things as technology has allowed for things to be you know a the costs have come down you know I, the the cost per mailing have come down tremendously you know the only thing that's gone up from a price standpoint is postage but but even after that you know the the originality has gone away the messaging has been has been often nationalized and you know it's it's un- it's just changed the way that politics works right which comes with a price i mean it, you know right and then in 2006 you be you you ran for state senate you were elected to the senate and you were reelected in 10 and then in, and then 14 and then now today you are running for governor of maryland and and you're running in a I think at one point it was a eight-person primary, but one of the candidates had ended or suspended their campaign, and now we're down to just seven. Just seven, right? Now we're just, and it's this is a crowded contest. And so, 2014, and I've I've seen you in forums and in, in which you have participated, and you know I've heard you grumble, or I I think you were, you've taken umbrage in the way that. The, the last candidate who was the nominee for the Democratic Party in Maryland um, lost what everybody thought was going to be a, you know, he had it in the bag. And we're talking about now Congressman Anthony Brown. And when he was the lieutenant governor of Maryland, um, he was the, quote unquote, the, the, the establishment pick for the state of Maryland. And so he he lost to a Republican. And this is you know, the last time that happened was back in 2002 when Bob Ehrlich um, beat Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, and when you were first elected. So, you know, you here you are. You're 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 de- you decided to run for governor, but I know that you've talked that you're not going to make the same mistakes as Anthony Brown did last time. So, what are some of those mistakes, and what are you know what are you doing differently? Obviously, the first mistake is he never did a radio interview with Ryan Miner. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's good. That's good. Maybe, so maybe right one there, of these right there, already already ahead of the game. <laughs> that's uh, good. Um, well, I think part of it is you're you're right that um, 
it was a lackluster campaign. I think you could say there was um, an overconfidence mm. in um, the the ability to to win, and you know certainly maybe the campaign was run more like a coronation than like a competition. Yes, he got the crown. Um, that was a that was a huge mistake. You know, there were there were a number of things. I I would point out that the the similarities between the ra- the race in O2 and the race in 14 and why 18 will be very different. Those two races with Ehrlich winning and Hogan winning. Um those those two victories, which are the only times that a Republican has won the gubernatorial election since 1966. The only two times in the last 50 years so that a Republican has won the gubernatorial election happened in an electoral in an excuse me in an election cycle that did not coincide with a with a senatorial race. Yeah. So you had you had one you know you had one statewide race. Yes, there are other people who are on the ballot for statewide offices, but the the top of the ticket is solely the the governor when there's not a U.S. senator. So that meant the all of the decision making, all of that was dependent upon the the gubernatorial nominee who happened to be in both of those cases the sitting lieutenant governor after you know of a of an administration that had served for two years so mm-hmm. it was a an administration in essence going for a third term which is always which is always difficult and one even though even though in Maryland you know we have had you know we obviously went through a very long stretch of democratic governors a, a lieutenant governor has never become governor. No, you know we only restored the position of lieutenant governor. I think after the um, in 1970. So we haven't had we haven't had a lieutenant governor for for um, for a very long time. You know we we haven't. It's a relatively new office, but n- no one, unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, in essence, uh, the seat has never. Uh, a governor has never vacated the seat since we created a lieutenant governor, either by choice or by death. Um, so that's why I said, fortunately, no lieutenant governor <laughs> has become governor. None right. of them have been able to win election themselves for the office. But it just so you know, it just so happened that in those two cases, it happened in a year where there was no U.S. senator on the ballot. So there was no, in essence, coordinated campaign, no second candidate. You know, I've I've often felt like in either one of those races, if Barbara Mikulski, if Ben Cardin, Paul Sarbanes, Chris Van Hollen, whatever, were up in that same election cycle, the results would have been different because they would have forced a more aggressive campaign than the Brown campaign managed to do. But so, the Manolino campaign, it, it, it's looking decidedly different in that you are running, and you're not running away from being a progressive. In fact, that's you're, you're embracing that. And in this field, you, it looks like that some of the establishment Democrats in the state of Maryland have decided to go with one candidate. And then you have really – you have developed a massive base of support in Montgomery County. And I, the, the more and more I talk to people, the more and more I hear, well, you know, we're, we're going to be back in Rich Manolino, and this is a huge county – for Democrats, and and I'm looking at the the latest Gonzalez poll that they did, and I think you're around four or five percent. And then you're. It's also said, uh, Senator Madalino, that you and 
Ben Jealous, the former NAACP chief who's um, running in Maryland for governor, it, you know, you're competing for the same sort of base of support. But I also I look at this race, too, and I think, well, Rich Manolino has the established connections in Annapolis. You know, he's been he's been at this. He's a budget expert and he's been uh, you know, he knows state government. And for that matter, county government in Montgomery County, better than most anybody that we know. And so what is how are you going to be able to to get your message out and how are you going to be able to break through this pack? Well, I I think what you see in the certainly the results of every poll is is a wide open field. In fact, the the the. The candidate, or, the, or the, the answer that has by far the the, um, the the greatest number of respondents is undecided, right? <laughs> so, um, right. you know, to put it in context, uh, uh, four years ago, Anthony Brown was at 41%. This time around, uh, at this point of the campaign, this time around, the front runner is at 24%. So, right. um, or the person in, in first uh, with the highest number is only at 24%. So it's a very it's a crowded field. It's still an ill-defined field. Uh, you know, that I, I think the public still hasn't really focused on it. You know, one thing, one thing that unites every Democrat right now is the desire to win and to stop Donald Trump and the Republican yes. Party. So yeah. Donald Trump's election has unified the, Republic, the Democratic Party and motivated it like nothing seen before. Unfortunately, and what it hasn't is- done – Beating I should, I should say beating Larry Hogan. I'm sorry. What say that again? Well, I was. I was. What another uniting uh, characteristic of this race is 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 beating Larry Hogan. You've talked about that. In fact, you have been one of um, his most uh, defined critics um, in the state senate and, and among the, the members of the general assembly. And so that brings me to I think the most important question of the evening, Senator Madeline is. Why, why do you want to be governor, and what makes you the best candidate? Well, um, I want to be governor right now because governors are more important than ever before, and the governor of Maryland is a critically, critically important position. I don't know if your listeners know. Um, I don't know if you know, but you've probably listened to enough forums and <laughs> over time to, to realize this. Our governor, believe it or not, is the most powerful governor in the country, the Powers that are granted to our governor go beyond that of any of the other 49 governors in our state constitution. The most powerful executive budget by far, the broadest um, powers to appoint people at the state and local level, even at some of the state, the local school boards are appointed by the governor. All of the judges, all of the cabinet, um, the power to do regulations. I mean, not only does the governor have the power to sign or veto legislation, all regulations that flow from the legislation that's created by the by the legislature, um, all of those regulations that implement those laws that are passed are set by the governor, and the legislature can't stop them. We can hold a hearing. We can provide comments. We can say, please don't do that. 
the only thing we can do is pass, if we don't like it, is pass a law to override the regulations, which, of course, has to be signed or vetoed by the same governor. So it is an incredibly powerful position. And at this moment in time, when you have Donald Trump in the White House, the Republicans and, you know, to me, the radical reactionary Republicans that are control of the Congress, it is vitally important that we have a Democrat as governor. But even more so, we have a Democrat as governor who knows what they're doing, who knows the issues, who can make progress on the issues that people care about, you know, public education and transforming our public education system. So it's not just adequate or above average or the best in the country, but is the best or amongst the best in the world so that our young people can compete in the challenging global economy of the 21st century. Someone who cares about delivering smart infrastructure for our community so that we can continue to grow in, all, in the Washington area, in the Baltimore area, and across the state. Someone who has a record of accomplishment in the, at the state level, who has built and led the coalitions that have gotten things done in the long term um, to improve our state, improve the lives of our citizens, the future for our children, and who's been willing to take the hard votes, who's been willing to say, you know what, yes, infrastructure is a problem. We need to have more money. The only way we're going to do it is by increasing the gas tax, who proposed it, who fought for it, who defended it on the floor, and is willing to go out and talk about it. Um, around the state and is willing to go out and remind people that the only reason why this road or that road or this bridge or this transit system is being built, it's because of the transportation plan that I championed, that I led the fight to try to get through with Martin O'Malley, and that is now giving, ironically, Larry Hogan, who opposed it and ran against it and promised to repeal it, and didn't the money to do all of the things, all of these different projects that he loves now going to ribbon cuttings and groundbreakings for. So, you know, I, I think one thing that we fail to do as Democrats is go out and defend our agenda, aggressively tell the public this is why we did these things and this is the benefit to the community for, for doing it. When we're ashamed, when we run away from the things that we've done, well, I'm sure it, we, we give we give a clear signal to the to the voters that we're not even um, uh, we're not even sure or we're not even confident in in our decisions. Um, when in fact, and I, I don't mean to digress, but I, I will a little bit. When we have this when we're having the conversation right now in Montgomery County, Maryland, about what mm -hmm. we will do to bring Amazon here. Yes. Um, you know, that we're one of the 20 finalists in North America to host the second headquarters. It is no surprise that when you look at Montgomery County, and in fact, when you look at those 19, the 19 sites selected in, North, uh, in the United States, and you could probably even throw Toronto in this, mm -hmm. all, of those, all of those communities share some things in common. A commitment to great public schools, a commitment to public infrastructure, a commitment to public amenities, a broad standing consensus that the government has a role in helping to build community and strengthening communities communities and the businesses that reside there that all come with a cost that part of that consensus is we understand good schools cost money we're going to pay the taxes good roads cost money we're going to pay the taxes and the, the business community and the voters everyone has been on board 
with a vision for how you build and sustain a strong, prosperous, growing community. And, of course, to me, the irony is it is the modern Republican Party, including the Republican Party in Maryland and Larry Hogan in particular, who have spent a lifetime fighting against the consensus that built a community like Montgomery County, whose policies and politics have sought to undermine and repudiate the progress that we've made in a community like Montgomery County and who now must walk around probably for the next several months wearing an I Love Montgomery County t-shirt each and every day um, in order to try to attract Amazon. You know, we can put a $2.5 billion infrastructure plan on the table because I led the charge to get a tax increase that gave us the revenues to be able for us to afford this infrastructure. Larry Hogan opposed it, ran against it, said he would repeal it, and didn't. So if we had listened to Larry Hogan just on that front, we would not be in the position to do a $2.5 billion promise to Amazon for infrastructure. The, the positions that Larry Hogan has taken, whether in the last three years as governor or the last 11 years fighting, the, the previous eight years fighting Martin O'Malley and the previous four years then with, with Bob Ehrlich and helping in his administration, or in the 30 years he has attempted to have a political career in Maryland, he has at each and every turn fought against the type of policies that have put at least Montgomery County in a position that we could be um, a finalist for for Amazon, and I wish you know, and I hope, and I want to go out and make that case that this is what enti- the entire state of Maryland has to do. You know, no meteorite hit Montgomery County and sprinkled you know magical fairy dust over us, which somehow put us in a stronger position. It has been thoughtful, intentional work on behalf of the for-profit community, the the business community, the advocacy community, the nonprofit community, labor the public, PTAs, to build a community that is worthy of of these types of investments and that attracts the most talented people from around our country, keeps talent here, and attracts talented people from around the world to invest in businesses, to invest their time, to grow their families, and to grow their businesses here in Montgomery County. And we should be proud of that, and we should seek to do that in other parts of the state. I agree. And, Senator, if Amazon decided that it was – that Montgomery County was where they wanted to open up shop here on the East Coast, and I can certainly understand why, are you you fearful, and I am, that we just don't have the infrastructure in place to be able to handle um, the influx of people? And not only that, are, are you concerned that our schools are still underfunded? Um, it's funny when you that you bring up the 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 whole question about are we ready? And this is this may not be the most apt analogy, but I had the good fortune of last year giving the Washington Day speech mm-hmm. um, in the Senate chamber, and I focused on the role George Washington and Maryland played in developing the city that's now named for George Washington and the the role that we had in the District of Columbia. And if you want to talk about an opportunity, you know, an incredible economic development opportunity to bring a, a an employer to the region that had no infrastructure, look at that decision to locate <laughs> the nice. national capital 
um, and the nation's government in the you know in on a on a hill not far from a swamp in the middle of nowhere along the Potomac River, and yet we were able to pull that off. I mean, obviously not you or I, but um, uh, you know the, the the people of the 1780s and 90 uh, and 90s and the early 1800s. And but they built a community here. We need that same spirit. We can do it. That happened then. We can do that again now. Um, it will be a strain, but that's the price to live in a growing um, community. I mean, I, I would always love – it's always better to live somewhere where traffic is a problem than where you don't have any traffic because nothing is happening. You know, right. when, when people – I always try to say to people who say like, oh, well, you know, we pay so much in taxes and we don't get enough back from the federal government. Or we pay too much taxes in, to the state and we don't get enough – back in return. And we can fight over and disagree over what would be the appropriate thing. But trust me, in, in each and every case, you would always want to be, a, you know, it's better off to be in a community that is a donor than a recipient. Yeah. So, um, so, so that's, there's, uh, it, it's a problem. Trust me, it's a problem that I think would, it would be helpful to have. And I, I relish as governor to try to deal with that. And and I think probably, you know, what what are the two, what are two of the biggest problems? I mean, a we yeah. have to continue to make the investment in education. And I'm proud of my role in the Kerwin Commission, and the recommendations we're making, and how we're going to build a truly um, and transform our public education system so that we have, uh, if not the best, amongst the best in the world. And we can do those things. Um, in order to to improve our public school system around the state for each kid, no matter where they live. But I also want to see that we have smart, innovative infrastructure, that we can be doing things that I think move our region, the Baltimore region, and all parts of the state forward, big cities, little cities, in order to move with some innovative things that reflect the changing um, technology. I think we also face, so we face a problem from a growth standpoint due to congestion and traffic, and we face a problem due to affordable housing. Yeah. And that will be the interesting conundrum. And when you look at all of sort of the major growth areas in our country, affordable housing is an issue in communities, whether you're talking about Washington, Baltimore, New York, Boston, Seattle, Los Angeles. Wherever you see growth, you see um, the high cost of housing, and that's something that is a a big problem. We're going to have to try to get ahead of on in on a regional basis um, in order for Maryland to remain competitive. Because when you think about it, the lack of affordable housing, the cost of housing, is one of the main drivers in what and what sets salaries, and then what sets salaries is one of the main drivers in the cost of doing business. And, why you know the cost of doing business is higher here than it is in other parts of the country right you know in in senator in Maryland is such a diverse state and you know you go you drive up to western maryland it it's different culturally and here in Montgomery county we are um we're we're progressive and on the eastern shore it's similar to western Maryland and Baltimore has its own sort of culture so when you're visiting all facets of the state of Maryland, what are the issues that when you're talking to somebody maybe at a, 
a democratic picnic or you visit um, a, you know, maybe a local church or you're talking to people just on the street. What are those issues, those reoccurring issues that people keep talking to you about? And what's, what are on people's minds? Well, how can we grow the Ryan Miner media empire? <laughs> yeah, that's way down there. <laughs> uh, okay, well, you know, people talk, or maybe that was just your wife. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, people are concerned about – people are concerned about education. People are concerned about what the future for – for them and their children will look like. Um, people are concerned about, um, you know, crime and the o- opioid problem, and that changes okay. community by community. You know, um, you and I are both sitting here in Montgomery County. It's a, it's a different conversation here than it is in other parts of the state. Sure. Um, there are, you know, there are different concerns about the the industries that dominate different parts of the state you know clearly the federal government the impact of what the trump administration is doing to the federal government on immigration uh, that has a that resonates in a in a different way in montgomery and prince george's county where you have so many federal employees where you have so many of the foreign-born residents of the state residing you know those those issues play different than they do on the eastern shore where agriculture is a far bigger issue and you know the the concern about how do we make sure that agricultural agriculture remains economically and environmentally sustainable um so that it is there to to provide a a, a living to people for for the long term you know there are there is a problem you know a challenge that we face in Maryland that the entire country faces of the of the divide between the the growing the the growing communities um, that that tend to be within the the center core in the middle of the of the the urban area stretching you know from from Richmond to Boston that tends to to dominate the the economy on the east coast but those those other areas that are facing more challenges, like a Hagerstown or Cumberland or Salisbury, yeah. and you know where people don't have that same economic vitality, and are and are more um, are, are are more subject to the the vagaries of a particular industry, like agriculture, or like warehousing, and sure. So. Y- you're up in Western Maryland, and uh-huh. you're you're a fervent progressive, and that's – what's great about – what I appreciate about you most is that you don't run from that. You, you go you – know, you say, this is who I am, and these are my policies, and there's a lot of people up in Western Maryland, Eastern Shore, and other places around the state of Maryland who would consider themselves to be conservative or even support President Trump. Um, although I, I still don't understand how, um, but you know, how do you win those folks over, Senator Madalino? What is the message to them? Well, you know, I think you know. First of all, it's trying to. I know it's easier said than done. <laughs> Tone down the rhetoric. I mean, I, I have no doubt in my mind that Larry Hogan loves the state of Maryland, as I hope he has no doubt. 
in his mind that I love the state of Maryland and the residents of the state of Maryland and have only the best in mind for everyone who is fortunate enough to call Maryland home. It's just, you know, putting out a different vision of how we do the most good for the most people to move us to move us forward. So, you know, it's reminding people that that we're all we all want the same thing. We all have the same dreams for ourselves and our loved ones. Um, for those of us fortunate to have kids, you know, we want them to to live healthy, healthy, happy, successful lives. And we want our, we all want to live, I think, <laughs> healthy, happy, successful lives. And here's the way that we do it. And, you know, to me, it is reminding people that we do it, we do it as a community. We do it by helping each other along the way, um, building institutions, supporting institutions that help move people forward. It's that ever-expanding circle um, in order to, to, to help grow prosperity and reminding people that that's always been the path of America, of, of America and Maryland, that, you know, if you look at challenges now for us to think through, like, oh, we're struggling as to who is an American, who is a, who is a, a Marylander? Is it, about, is it about race? Is it about religion? Is it about ethnicity? Those issues are nothing new. And that right. when Irish immigrants came over, there was a sense of, oh, how would these people, how could they ever, they're Catholic, they're uneducated, they're this, they're that, how could they ever assimilate in or be successful Americans? Now, I don't think anyone would ask that question. And it was the same for Italians coming in. You know, oh, the Italians are not, they're just so different. They're, they're uh, you know, for, for a lot of people, there was a sense of, well, Italians, are, they're, they're Southern Europe, they're not even white. Italians, Greeks, they're they're too dark. They're not white. They're 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 Catholic. They're a different religion. They speak, you know, a totally different language. They'll never fit in. They'll never assimilate. It'll destroy the country. Of course, we've moved beyond that. And it's the same. It's the same question. We are we are having the same debate all the time. And to me, it is reminding people that. Um, and Maryland, I have to say, throughout our history, Maryland has swung back and forth on this yes. of being a welcoming place and not being a welcoming place, being the original sanctuary community, um, the the colony that was founded on religious tolerance, um, you know, founded on a radical proposition for the 1600s that white Europeans of different Christian faiths could live together in peace and harmony and prosperity. That was a radical, radical idea for the for the 1600s. But we pulled that off in Maryland. Now it is funny that um, if you remember from history, the Know Nothings and the Know Nothing Party, um, which arose um, before the the Civil War. Maryland was the only state where a Know Nothing was elected um, governor. So you know, you we we have swung back and forth on the on the pendulum. But to me, it's it's reiterating the point of we do best when we open our doors, when we open our hearts, when we grow that circle is when we become a stronger, healthier, more prosperous community. That it's not by restricting who gets a piece of the pie, 
but it's growing the pie because it's never been in Maryland or in our country, it's never been a finite pie. And when we start to look at it as a finite pie, that's when we stop to grow. That's when we stop. I mean, to me, that's when we stop being Maryland, when we stop being America. It is about, it is about giving that positive future that, yes, time and time again, people have popped up and said, oh, no, the changes are too much. We, 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 we have to stop. We have to go back. We have to get back to what we were. And each and every time when that has occurred, that's when we've had problems in our country and in our state in particular. And it's time for us to refocus on how we continue to grow and widen that circle and welcome the next phase of, of Americans and recognize that uh, 100 years from now, people will be having this sort of conversation, probably not over a phone and on a podcast, which 100 <laughs> years ago people could never have envisioned. But right. um, but we'll we'll do so saying and remember remember when they couldn't you know when all when all the spanish speakers were coming over or where latin americans were coming over and you would and they you know they would never be seen they could assimilate or or people from asia or muslims or hindus or whatever and in fact all the the result was there was a you know people came together built a stronger community and we are only happier stronger healthier and wealthier as a result of that, and yeah. it's, re- it's restoring that sense of that sense of optimism. And to me, there's always been one political party in this country that has been the party of optimism, and there's always been one political party that's the party of fear. And they have, I mean, and I'm not saying that's always, you know, the Republicans have always been the party of fear, and the Democrats the party of of optimism, because of course the irony in American history, they've switched over and over <laughs> between between these two roles but right now i think it's clear that the democrats are the party of of hope and optimism for the future and the republicans especially under donald trump um mm. at, at its head and even people like larry hogan to me are the party of fear and anger and retrenchment as opposed to the party of growth and optimism and prosperity for all for the future I can tell, man. You you're ready to go. You're ready. You're 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 looking at, you know, the November election and some of these, you know, way past the primary, and you, you know, you're you're ready to go toe to toe with with Governor Hogan and who we should mention, you know, according to all the polls, and if we, uh, and and I've seen many of them as you have, they show that the governor is popular, and which is interesting in a state that is. Uh, a, a blue state. It's a democratic state. We Democrats have a two to one advantage. But um, you know, this year is is there a chance, given the unpopularity of the the current president and the what they're saying that could be a democratic wave, um, is that going to affect Governor Hogan? I mean, is he is that is is his? Um, I guess is is. Is Governor Hogan's um, popularity is that impenetrable, or is that something that you, you know you can chisel away at, and that's gonna you know he's gonna be caught up in um, you know some of the national sentiment, Senator? Well, I've already beat Larry Hogan; he just doesn't realize it. Um, you've got a year where I mean, just look at the just look at the dynamic 
that Larry Hogan faces. And I would remind you, look, Larry Hogan, Larry Hogan is, he's done, I mean, he's, he's got, I think, high personal favorabilities um, mm-hmm. and has lots of reasons to, 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 to have those favorable ratings. I would point out that I think Bob Ehrlich was still at like a 60% approval rating when he lost by almost 10 points to Martin O'Malley. So uh, in, in 2006, when, again, you had a wave election for the Democrats, I mean, the, the reality, the political reality in Maryland is when Democrats show up to vote, we cannot lose right. in the state of Maryland. I mean, the map is there. In Frederick. Huh? The ma- I said the map is there. It, yes, it's, it's in Frederick this past year – in November of last year, there was a there was a municipal election in Frederick, yeah. an incumbent two-term incumbent mayor who whose approval rating was also in the 60s, lost by 22 points to yep. a sitting city legislator, and Democrats won every seat for the first time ever in history. In Annapolis, a sitting an incumbent Republican mayor lost by 24 points, and seven of the eight seats on the board of aldermen went to um, Democrats each and every time Larry Hogan has gone out on a limb and, and endorsed the candidate. And it's not like he's been Mr. Republican and gone out there and worked for everybody. He has been very careful as to who he has backed each and every time that person has lost and often lost huge. He was all in with Kathy Schlega against Chris Van Hollen, you know, Delia Schlega, who is a, a Republican candidate out of central casting was crushed by Chris Van Hollen last year. Donald Trump was crushed by Hillary Clinton in Maryland last year. When Democrats show up to vote, we cannot lose in the state of Maryland. If you just look at in 2016 in the presidential primary, now I realize it's a closed Democratic primary, meaning only Democrats could vote in the Democratic primary. Right. 926,000 voters came out to vote for in that primary. Now, it was a competitive race, competitive undecided U.S. president race, undecided U.S. Senate race, so two marquee races to pull out people. If we can just motivate those 926,000 Democrats to come back and vote in the general election next year, excuse me, this year in 2018, that's roughly 40,000 more votes than Larry Hogan got in what was the all-time high-water mark for a Republican nominee for governor. So Larry Hogan has to find a way to up his vote total in a year that will be disastrous for Republicans in our state and around the country because of the Trump headwinds. So he has to find a way to up his total, which was the best ever for a Republican, in a year that will be tremendously bad for Republicans. He, you know, I think it's fair to say in 2014, Anthony Brown had to do everything wrong in order to to lose and somehow managed to do that. <laughs> yeah. This time around, Larry Hogan has to do absolutely everything right. Everything has to break his way in order for him to to win. And I, 
I would not make that bet, even with tens of millions of dollars behind him from you know the Republican billionaire establishment that is seeking to purchase whatever election they want across the country. <laughs> You're talking that about the activism Coke of the. Well, it's not just the Koch brothers. I mean, it's you know, it's everyone from the Mercers to the Kochs to to Steve Wynn. I mean, you know, there there's big money that's out there more so on the Republican side than the Democratic side, but there's numbers and activism and energy on the Democratic side. And that is what's going to carry the day as we did in Frederick, as we did in Annapolis this year, as you saw in Virginia. One of the reasons why Virginia flipped the way it did is you had boatloads of people from Maryland and D.C., going down into Virginia, making phone calls every day into Virginia, door knocking in Virginia to help win. Why do you think the House of Delegates shifted? Because you had boatloads of people coming in from Maryland in order to fill up the volunteer offices to go out and door knock in places and ask for people to vote in places they never did before. You're going to see that same level of activism. I have gone from meeting after meeting, indivisible, do the most good, together we will, local groups like the Jaywalkers in Montgomery County, people who have been making phone calls and traveling to Georgia, making phone calls and traveling to Alabama, and fighting day after day after day to win in Virginia, all designed enhance their abilities to be strong canvassers and phone bankers and to understand the mechanism and the tools of doing that so that they could build an even stronger operation in Maryland so that a Democrat could win governor, the Democrats will, you know, can win U.S. House races, defend the Senate, win legislative races, win at the local level. That's where you have energized and motivated Democrats who are going to be out there pushing everyone to the polls. So, I mean, I think, sadly for Larry Hogan, he he just doesn't stand a chance if we nominate the right person for the job. And I think there's no better person. I'm sure this will come as a surprise to you. I think there's no better person in the race than me. Um, No, no one has my record of accomplishment. No one has my ability to go toe to toe with the governor and fight with him, debate with him the, the, the policies that um, we need to have defend the things that we've done as Democrats uh, highlight the one the the mistakes and the and the bad policies that he's tried to put through. Remind people that we would be we would be in a world of hurt if we actually had followed Larry Hogan's agenda for the state. If we had actually got him or implemented things that he wanted to do, cutting public schools, cutting people off of Medicaid cutting our revenues for our transportation system and cutting back on on our infrastructure projects, um, denying people the opportunity to vote early, restricting the environment, all these things that time and time again he 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 proposed cutting, he he vetoed all of those things. We need someone who can go and remind people this is this is why this is why we did the things we did and remind people that, in fact, a lot of the 
the agenda Larry Hogan is running on, a lot of why people feel good about the state of Maryland is because there are things that the legislature got done that I got done with my leadership in order to stop Larry Hogan from doing the bad things that would have that would have put Maryland in reverse. Yeah. So, you know, as we wrap up and uh, thinking ahead, um, you know, you uh, the filing deadline is coming up and, and uh-huh. February the 27th at 9 p.m. And I'm sure that's etched into every single candidate's memory bank. Uh, the exact time. So, you know, everybody will be filing here soon. So have you considered, have you been given consideration to um, a Lieutenant Governor candidate and have you made a choice yet? Sure. Just to remind your listeners, just, you know, in Maryland, you have to file with your Lieutenant Governor. It's not like Virginia where it's a separate race. It's not like president where the nominee picks the vice president once they've secured the nomination, you have to right. run as a ticket. So, yes, I'm doing it, and I'm looking at, at candidates right now and trying to go through and figure out who would be the the best partner for me running, who would be a person that, if need be, had to take over the responsibility for governor, could do it. I mean, I'm taking this responsible responsibility seriously because, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, while I – while I plan to be governor and would hope to fill out a term, none of us knows what's <laughs> what's around God the willing. corner. Right. Yeah. So well, I want to make sure there's Senator, someone. You're you're a healthy. I mean, you're a really you're a really healthy guy. I mean, look, I I read something in the Baltimore Sun that you lost like what seventy pounds. Um, yep. And uh, you know you're you're looking very fit and. Um, so, I, I mean, who knows what could happen to any of us? I mean, I'm sure, you know, looking at Governor Hogan, I'm sure that he didn't expect to, in his first year, to be diagnosed with stage three non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and um, that's why it's important that we we look at, um, you know, who's the number two, who can be able to to step in at any time and be able to take um, the reins of uh, Maryland's government at the executive branch. So you know, is are you want to share any names tonight? Or <laughs> I know I'm I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, but I'm sure that you'll you know. Is there a timeline when you're going to set to announce it? I'm you know, as the Politico in me, I always I always get a kick out of this, and this is the I love the the insider baseball, and you know when people are going to make these big announcements because it's a it's a big thing. So I don't know if you want to break right. any news here tonight. <laughs> Um, there's no news to break tonight, but rest okay. assured, we're doing interviews, looking at at people and a series of, I think, uh, candidates who I'm very excited about. Good, good. That's always the fun part. But um, yep. well, I I want to say that you are, um, you know, you're one of the most well-respected senators and legislators in Annapolis, and I I hear that consistently well, that, um, that, among your that's colleagues. That's damning with faint praise. <laughs> well, um, no, I, I mean that. They, that. That is the that is what your colleagues have said. And when you are in the forums, you um, I've seen you in several of them and you, you shine and you stand out. And in this race where there's uh, several Democrats that are running for for governor, uh, you have to stand out in a way. And I think that your experience alone sets you apart from the rest of the candidates here. And there's many qualified candidates who are running for, for, 
for governor on the Democratic tick, Democratic side. But uh, I, I certainly think that your your years of experience in Annapolis, knowing the budget as well as you do, um, that certainly uh, would 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 be meaningful to any Democratic primary voter. So um, you are you know this is a exciting time for all of us in Maryland as we watch the race unfold. And you talk about policy, and there's a wonky guy myself, and I I read all of your stuff that uh, your press folks sent over to me. And I want to, I want to commend you. Thank you so much for your, your campaign has been um, very hands-on and very communicative with me. Uh, Lance has always reached out and has given me materials and I'll keep posting it. So I, I appreciate that coming, you know. Well, thank you. And thank you for doing what you're doing because obviously, you know, the changing media landscape, especially at state governments is something that I think most people are unfamiliar with. And, you know, the, the idea that, you know, while we have, you know, a tremendous amount of press attention yeah. at the national level and, you know, you, you might argue that, that whatever um, uh, the cable news networks <laughs> have never been more popular and more yeah. watched, that certainly MSNBC isn't spending day in and day out looking at um, the state of Maryland or CNN or Fox, you know, it's. It's a different challenge, and that's why, you know, obviously entities like yours and, you know, and your work helps fill a void that, unfortunately, for whatever reason, the private sector has been unwilling to or unable to find a way to profit off of and fill a void. Well, I I appreciate that, and we're, you know, I'm trying to give all the candidates a a fair shake and cover the race as best as I can, as as much time as allows, but I appreciate you you spending – the time with us tonight and uh, um, Senator, I'm sure I'm going to see you on the campaign trail and I wish you all the very best of luck and thanks for all that you do for, for the state of Maryland. Oh, no problem. Thank you, uh, Ryan, very much. I greatly appreciate it. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much and best of luck and we'll talk soon. Okay. Bye. All right. So long. Bye-bye. All right. That was state Senator Rich Madalino, and we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks to everybody for listening.